You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Hello, Rebecca Mays here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. This episode of Stick Together was produced on Jarjarwarang country and broadcast nationally on the community radio network. It is brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. This week we've got loads of news, including the latest on what's happening for workers in the gig economy and the passing of the Omnibus Bill. And then you'll hear from Felicity Sauberts from the Young Workers Centre about how the current apprenticeship scheme is allowing businesses and companies to exploit workers with impunity. But first, some union news. So after all the conversations, consultation and wheeling and dealing, the omnibus bill has been passed by the Senate. Here's a report from the New Daily. The Morrison government has gutted its controversial industrial relations omnibus bill, ditching protections against wage theft in a chaotic day in the Senate on Thursday that saw only a husk of the original legislation approved. After Centre Alliance Senator Sterling Griff, the likely key swing voter on the legislation, said he opposed most of the contentious changes, the government bowled up far more modest legislation, which creates a new definition of casual work and creates a pathway for such workers to transfer to permanent work. The cuts included snipping out sections designed to better protect against wage theft, a move immediately slammed by ACTU Secretary Sally McManus. All that remains in the bill is an attack on the rights of casual workers, which will make exploitation even more widespread and leave workers unable to enforce their rights, she said. This is a shameful and vindictive reaction to not getting widespread support for other changes that would reduce workers' rights. The government also abandons its most controversial proposals, such as fast-tracking enterprise bargaining negotiations and extending new rights for employers to change workers' conditions. The changes set off chaos in the Senate as the coalition sought to bring on votes on the bill, gag debate and block further amendments. Senator Griff called the removal of wage theft rules spiteful. It represents a major embarrassment for the government, which had proposed the IR bill as one of its key legislative priorities for 2021. The government had already jettisoned the most controversial part of its original proposal a plan to sideline the better-off overall test, meaning that nearly the entire original plan was shelved. Thursday's developments came after Senator Griff announced his long-awaited position on the bill. He said he would back only minor parts of the legislation, including more enforcement against wage theft and a definition of casual work, but vote against the rest. The legislation had already passed the House of Representatives, but was stalled in the Senate due in part to the absence of Industrial Relations Minister Christian Porter. He remains on medical leave after outing himself as the subject of historical rape allegations. 
Labor has claimed the bill would be a massive pay cut for workers, while the union movement called it the worst thing since work choices. The vote in the upper house was tight, with the success or failure of the legislation essentially coming down to Senator Griff's decision. After his stance was announced, in amendments rapidly introduced on Thursday, the government slashed its proposed changes to modern awards, greenfield sites, enterprise agreements, compliance and enforcement with the Fair Work Commission and protections against wage theft. This week, the ITF, or International Transport Workers Federation, reported that after weeks of protests over a pay cut which saw over half of hungry panda riders in Australia join the TWU, Transport Workers Union, the food delivery company has agreed to several changes. This historic win includes reinstating two riders who were terminated for protesting pay cuts, restoring pay to previous levels or increasing it in other areas, introducing an injury insurance package for all riders and removing the performance management tier classification system. Hungry Panda has also committed to ongoing negotiations with the TWU and riders to resolve safety and rating issues. Across the world, we are seeing the tide turn in favour of gig workers, said Stephen Cotton, ITF General Secretary, noting recent legal victories in Spain, Italy, the Netherlands and the UK that have recognised worker-employer relationships. The European Commission is meanwhile undertaking consultations around the rights of workers in the gig economy, which could result in confirming their entitlement to similar employment rights to traditionally employed workers. Delivery riders last week formed a global network to highlight the company's exploitative business model to investors ahead of its upcoming IPO. The Rights for Riders Network, which is supported by the ITF, is demanding improvements to rider safety, conditions and pay. For too long, platform companies have exploited a lack of regulation to generate billions of dollars of value at the expense of workers, said Cotton. This latest victory at Hungry Panda shows how much power there is in riders coming together to organise. We applaud Hungry Panda riders and our affiliate TWU for this important victory. The ITF will continue to support riders across the world in demanding better and safer work and to lobby gig platforms to recalibrate their abusive business models. In November, the ITF launched 10 gig economy employer principles which provide a roadmap for employers to respect the human rights of their workers. This week, the Electrical Trades Union, or ETU, released a statement reflecting on the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Ten years ago, the world held its breath, crossed its fingers, and learnt a new word. Fukushima went from being the name of a provincial Japanese city to global shorthand for a costly, contaminating and continuing nuclear disaster. On the anniversary of the Fukushima meltdown, our thoughts are with the workers and local communities who are exposed to toxic radiation from the nuclear disaster, said Alan Hicks, National Secretary of the ETU and the CEPU. These workers were put in harm's way by a system and company that ultimately didn't care enough about their safety. The nuclear industry poses too big a risk to human health and safety to be viable, especially when there are far better and safer alternatives like renewable energy. Our government and all Australians must put their foot down and say no to nuclear industry in our country. Not now, not ever. The Fukushima crisis has significant local lessons. Australian radioactive rocks are the source of Fukushima's fallout, said Australian Conservation Foundation nuclear-free campaigner Dave Sweeney. 
In October 2011, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade formally confirmed that Australian uranium was routinely sold to the corner-cutting Tokyo Electric Power Corporation and was fueling the Fukushima complex at the time of the disaster. Despite this reality, a small minority of pro-nuclear politicians and industry associations continue to push domestic nuclear power, in part to distract from their inaction on meaningful efforts to address climate change. The federal, New South Wales and Victorian governments have all completed nuclear inquiries in recent years, and all three governments plan to retain laws banning nuclear power. Nuclear power is high cost, high risk and lacks broad community support. More than 60 civil society organisations with a broad demographic and geographic spread across sectors including trade union, public health, indigenous, environment, faith and climate action and advocacy have formally expressed their opposition to nuclear plans through these processes. On this anniversary of the Fukushima disaster, our organisations are calling for Australia to act on our real energy choices and challenges and to not waste precious time and public funds on the promotion of the underperforming, unreliable and unsafe nuclear sector. The Union for Employee Pharmacists has released its latest report into pharmacists' pay, the Community and Hospital Pharmacists' Employment and Remuneration Report 2019-2020. Professional Pharmacists Australia President Jeff March said the report paints a disturbing picture of the pressures and unsatisfactory pay and conditions received by Australia's pharmacists. Throughout the entire COVID-19 pandemic, Australia's pharmacists selflessly continued their vital work, ensuring that the community was provided with the important medication and health services they needed, he said. Along with other essential healthcare workers, we rightly applauded them as heroes. But this report reveals that Australia's pharmacists are receiving wages and conditions that are not commensurate with the skills and expertise they provide and the value they contribute to the health sector and our community. Despite years of tertiary education and the acquisition of incredibly high-level knowledge and skills, pharmacists receive low wages, work unsociable hours, are chronically understaffed and experience intense workplace pressure and stress. At the same time, they have few opportunities for career progression and promotion. As a result, less than one-third of pharmacists actually recommend pharmacy as a career, and up to 30% of pharmacists at some community pharmacies are intending to leave their employment. On the topic of wages, the report found that lower median hourly rates of pay for pharmacists employed by discount pharmacies was largely driven by respondents working for Chemist Warehouse, which has some of the least attractive pay conditions of any pharmacy chain in Australia. By comparison, national pharmacies UFS and Amcal, Amcal Max, had some of the best rates of pay across the board, making them appealing employers for community pharmacists. However, pharmacists working in hospitals and covered by enterprise bargaining agreements could expect a median salary of up to $7,500 more each year, or up to $8 an hour higher than those working in community pharmacies. The median rate of pay for a community pharmacist was $38 an hour, the report says, compared to $46 for a hospital pharmacist. Pay progression has been almost flat over the last decade, the report notes, saying that community pharmacy in particular is notorious for flat pay progression. As for penalty loadings, these were most likely to be available to hospital pharmacists who were also much more likely to have access to paid parental leave provisions at 69.3% compared to 27.7% in the community sector. 
Hospital pharmacists were also more likely to have access to leave loading and on-call or standby payments. The only benefit community pharmacists were much more likely to have access to was pay for working through lunch breaks. Pharmacists have endured years of downward pressure on wages, hazy career progression and a lack of respect for their important role in our communities, the report said. Combined, these have had a negative impact on morale, leading to a generation of pharmacists that aren't even confident of recommending their profession to others. Only 28% of community pharmacists indicated they would recommend pharmacy as a career. Sentiment was even more negative amongst pharmacists employed at discount pharmacy chains, with a slim 15.1% recommending pharmacy as a career. The respondents said the biggest cause of unhappiness was pressure and stress of work, followed by inadequate staffing, poor pay and lack of recognition. Poor pay, the pressures and stress of work and inadequate staffing were all substantially more of an issue at the discount chains. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. My short experience as an apprentice in 2019 was a real eye-opener. Many people were encouraging me. The idea that I would have a secure pathway to employment and practical skills training were very appealing. Why was I in for a shock? So I wanted to play some clips from the Film Australia collection. This short documentary was made by the Commonwealth Film Unit in 1969 and shows how the apprenticeship scheme worked at the time. The film gives an example of an apprenticeship at the Ford factory in Geelong. By a contract of apprenticeship, a person is bound to another for the purpose of learning a trade or calling. The apprentice undertaking to serve the master for the purpose of being taught and the master undertaking to teach the apprentice. I think when you leave school, you're a bit confused. Choosing the right career isn't easy. The Commonwealth Employment Service will advise you. If you're really uncertain, they'll give you an aptitude test. Once they know what kind of trade interests you, they'll find you an apprenticeship. Within each industry, there is a great variety of firms, both large and small. Parents are often very uncertain about what's involved in an apprenticeship for their boy. We like to meet them and give them as clear a picture as we can. Well, we're trying to decide whether our boy should leave school, and if he does, we're wondering whether an apprenticeship might be the best thing for him. Well, first of all, if your son has the ability and you can keep him on at school, then do it. Worthwhile careers are calling for and encouraging higher qualifications these days, and apprenticeship's no exception. Fourth and fifth year secondary school qualifications can mean a reduction to the traditional five-year term of apprenticeship. And in addition to this, the higher the qualifications an apprentice has, and the greater is his chance for promotion. As an example, there's the superintendent of the engine plant, Mr Lloyd Foster. He's an ex-apprentice. We recognise that an apprentice is a lad in his most formative years. We endeavour to give them an education for life. It's our responsibility to see that the boys get the very best training in their field. They work to a definite program, six weeks in one section, 
six weeks in another, and so on. There are all sorts of opportunities in a place like this. At least a third of any batch of apprentices end up in specialised sections other than the tool room. When you first start your apprenticeship, you don't know what to aim for. Then you find you've got more aptitude, more liking for a certain section, and you set yourself a goal in life. Looking back, I think one of the hardest things about being an apprentice was earning less money than some of your friends. But once you're through, it's a different story. This is what you've got to work for, to say to yourself, I've got a trade behind me. It's worth it in the end. This film does not reflect my experience as an apprentice at all. So we need to ask the question, what has changed? There are so many factors involved here, so I'll just raise a few. With the shift to neoliberalism and free market capitalism, companies have become all about profit. They used to invest in training local workers, but the offshoring of so much of the manufacturing industry, for example, means that those opportunities no longer exist in Australia. The gutting of the TAFE sector has also had huge impacts on apprentices and the quality of the training they receive. Training takes time and money, and a focus on profits over people means that our current apprenticeship scheme is no longer about equipping young people for long-term careers. This shift has happened slowly. Bit by bit, the power of the contract between the apprentice, the employer and the government has become so skewed that some companies are now using opportunities like the recent job trainer funding to exploit the system for profit. Instead of training and equipping apprentices for the future of work, the current scheme has no regard for the lives of young workers. There is no oversight of employers in fulfilling their obligations to apprentices, including adequate training, supervision, wages or safety at work. I spoke to Felicity Sauberts from the Young Workers Centre about what apprentices are facing today and what we can do about it. So yeah, I'm Felicity Sauberts, I'm the director of the Young Workers Centre and uh, we're a one-stop shop for young Victorians aged 30 and under who need assistance or advice with any workplace issues. And our vision is for a state of Victoria in which young workers are treated with respect at work, are safe at work, are paid their minimum legal entitlements and are not bullied and harassed at work. So the Young Worker Centre was launched five years ago and um, by the Victorian Union movement, we mm. recognised that there was a big problem where so many young workers were being ripped off or exploited at work. And, you know, something had to be done about that and um, because that's no way for anybody to start their working life. Um, and we also acknowledged that the number of young workers who were joining their unions and had that security and protection and um Yes, support when things do go wrong at work was sadly, you know, pretty dramatically declining. So um, we, yeah, we set up the Young Workers Centre to, I guess, be a, a, an in, introductory um, place to the union movement, as well as assisting workers who are in ununionized um, workplaces. Yeah, and that would include apprentices, right? 
So yeah, we have um, a large amount of apprentices who have reached out to us in particular over the last 18 months. There's really been an increase and an influx in the number of apprentices who have reached out to us. And the number of apprentices reaching out to the Young Workers Centre has um, almost doubled and it actually almost accounts for about 50% of our of inquiries to our legal centre. Um, and this actually means that the number of clients that we've taken on has also dramatically increased and um, who are apprentices and um, the number from from 2019 to 2020 the number of apprentices that we've taken on as clients has um, grown by 300 percent so it's massive <laughs> wow yeah I spoke with your colleague Scott a few months ago when they made that first announcement, but they've since committed more funds. But is that going to help at all or are there other issues that need to be addressed? So what we're hearing from apprentices from a range of industries is that they've got a lot of problems. So they're experiencing wage theft, they're being bullied and harassed at work, they're working in unsafe workplaces, some are not even being released to go to TAFE or being signed up to go to TAFE in the first place. And other apprentices have reached out and told us that they're not being, that TAFE fees are not being paid. There's a whole range of issues which apprentices are currently dealing with in the workplace. And now that you're right, the government is throwing a lot of cash at, uh, to, to, big, to businesses and um, to encourage them to take on apprentices. And, um, you know, in a, this is an apprenticeship wage subsidy um, and it gives money to businesses to, yeah, to take on an apprentice and trainee or trainee and have their wages subsidized so it covers up to 50 percent of an apprentice's wage which is you know, a pretty big handout to businesses to take on board an apprentice and um, in terms of whether you know we welcome it or think it's the right thing to do, you know we welcome it in the sense that the government had to intervene because without significant intervention, we were staring down the barrel of 130,000 fewer apprenticeships and traineeships than previously expected from the start of the pandemic to June 2023. But we do have some really big concerns about the short-sightedness, I guess, of the announcement and the impact that it will have on completion rates and exploitation in the workplace. And we're nervous that what happens after one year when suddenly an employer no longer has 50% of their wages covered, and also an apprentice's wage will increase because they'll go from, for instance, first year to second year or second year to third year. And so it is a short-term strategy to a problem that requires long-term action. Um, and, you know, this federal government has overseen 100, over 100,000 apprenticeship losses nationally during their time in power. And, you know, this um, wage subsidy only goes part way to creating creating new ones but the important thing is that the new ones should be good apprenticeships like there shouldn't be ones where workers are being exploited and that's no way for any worker to be treated let alone at the start of a new career when you think you're going to be in that industry and have a good secure job for decades to come and we're yeah we're really nervous and um, what happens after that one year mark we're nervous that there are dodgy employers who will who are using this scheme to access even cheaper labour and they're the ones that will want into this scheme and that's a you know that's a really good big worry and 
it could ultimately lead to you know government funded exploitation if there aren't checks and balances and things put in place to make sure that the bosses who are taking on these apprentices and trainees are actually treating their workers correctly and with respect mm. what can we do though like to make sure that this money doesn't lead to that exploitation yeah so we need um a system in place where um these dodging bosses can be reported and that there's checks and balances so that their workplaces are inspected so that they are, are punished essentially if they do mistreat an apprentice at the moment that doesn't happen they get away with a slap on the wrist and we've seen time and time again where there's a rotating door of apprentices who are being hired one after another by a workplace and they're not being held accountable and um, so yeah there's there needs to be spot checks there needs to be checks and balances and and ultimately uh, some sort of licensing scheme in place and the government must be in, you know should be supporting apprentices to learn valuable skills and not just come up with another way for big business or business in general to boost profits whilst exploiting apprentices as cheap labor and um, I would definitely recommend that you know every apprentice joins their union and you're at the start of a, you know your working life in a new industry and and yeah I would definitely recommend that that's obviously the best sort of protection is joining your union. Did there used to be more regulations around apprenticeships? And in the past there's been blacklists but at the moment there is a lack of regulation in this mm. area and at the moment, an employer just needs to sign a statutory declaration to say that they're a fit and proper person and they are kind of complying and can take on an apprentice. Once they take on an apprentice and they sign that statutory deck, that, that they're void of having any spot checks and, you know, placed on them. So at the moment, yeah, the, we, we believe there's, you know, repeat offenders who are uh, signing false declarations that's not on yeah how can listeners and union members support the work that you're doing and support young people in apprenticeship the young workers center is gearing up to run a campaign this year for safer fairer apprenticeships and i would really encourage any young workers or workers more broadly whether they've been an apprentice themselves a trainee themselves or just support and you know the idea of good secure jobs to get involved in the campaign and they can head to youngworkers.org.au to find out more there's an event on there that they can rsvp to come along to we're gearing up and building i guess an activist space to then launch the campaign great so stay tuned and get ready for action yeah That's it for Stick Together this week. Thanks for listening and thanks to Felicity Salvitz for talking to us. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 039419 8377 and leaving us a message. 
remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. I'm Rebecca Mays. Catch you next time. Listen to 3CR. This is Billy X. Jennings of the Black Panther Party. Power to the people. Behind these prison walls, there's a man who's won awards for the work that he has done. Tune in at 9.30 a.m. Thursdays to hear a special series, Home Run for Julian. Join James Brennan as he tracks the campaign to bring Julian Assange back to Australia, starting on the 18th of March. This special four-part series will feature interviews from Julian's dad, John Chipton, and other tour participants. Follow the convoy from Melbourne through regional towns in New South Wales and Victoria and back to Melbourne. Thursdays, 9.30 till 10am. Home run for Julian on 3CR is someone who is a hero to whistleblowers everywhere when you know there's a dick and they're coming to evict when you want renters rights then you gotta enjoy the fight the 28th of march marks the end of the eviction moratorium in victoria thousands of victorian renters will be at threat of eviction the housing crisis is a choice made by the government. Andrews will deliberately make thousands of renters homeless. If he could stop evictions before, he can do it again. The Renters and Housing Union, Rahu, are calling on your support. Sunday, March 28th, 12pm, State Parliament. Stand with us for our demands on the Victorian... And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Yeah, this is Annie and Jordy here for Solidarity Breakfast on this rainy morning. Yes. Oh, it's only just started raining as we were pulling up to the studio at 6.30. I'm still not used to seeing the sunrise anymore, <laughs> although I know we've got daylight savings coming up. So, uh, yeah, fingers crossed I'll be able to start seeing that in the mornings again. It'll be very nice. Yeah. There's been a thousand things happening this week. Oh, it just keeps getting more chaotic and, and worse. And we've gone from what was, you know, a March for Justice rally and a few complaints off to the side and some, you know, Serious internal political um, machinations. Uh, yes, yes, um, to a full blown political crisis, and a lot of media organisations are calling it exactly that. 
and that's not even unionist related you know <laughs> we still have our our normal uh our normal trade for the week uh as it was so um yeah there's there's been a lot going on um through this week we had the autumn rebellion from xr so if you've been anywhere near the cbd it's actually pretty likely that you've been interacted with them or interacting with them in some disposal especially if you're a motorist and um yeah they've been doing some pretty broad work in terms of the demonstrations we talked about this last week but i actually had the opportunity to chat with them for this week and just check in with them and find out how things were going particularly poignant that the sydney and brisbane protests um for xr were actually cancelled due to bad weather um, possibly caused by the climate change. So, you know, uh, well, climate emergency, I should say. So that's um, a bit of a bit of an irony there. But it got me kind of wondering whether or not it would be a bolster or an impedance to the cause in some respects. Mm. So, yeah, um, that, that, well, that was pretty, one of the two things Well, it's pretty horrific. That I, uh, I mean, on. as people have been saying, that uh, first you have the fires and then you have the floods. It's a bit biblical, isn't it? Mm, mm. No, in every sense, yeah, yeah. Well, it's you can almost say it's it's more apocalyptic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, I suppose there's a bit of a segue to remind people that uh, tomorrow is Palm Sunday because we're leading into uh, Easter, and of course, Easter is really important because that's when the Marxist conference is on. So if you haven't got your tickets... That's the only reason Easter's important, 3CR. <laughs> but um, on Sunday is actually the annual Palm Sunday uh, rally for refugees, and uh, that's going to be at 2pm at the State Library. And before that, of course, is Rahu. Rahu is having um, a, a rally on Parliament steps starting at uh, 1 o'clock, I think it is? Yes, 1pm um, at Parliament. Just preceding the Palm Sunday for refugees refugees uh, because, of course, the moratorium on uh, evictions is finishing tomorrow. Yep. Um, This is a pretty significant change. Unfortunately, uh, no extension was secured, so we're hoping that some action through the week can be quick enough to prevent any sort of landlords quickly jumping in on the act. Um, In any case, if you do run into issues, get in touch with the Renters and Housing Union. Make your voice heard um, because right now we're seeing a lot of people be pushed back into poverty. And this is mostly because of job seeker and job keeper cuts, um, along with plenty of other policies that, you know, we've been discussing about on Solidarity Breakfast. Point is, if you're having these issues, there is a Renters and Housing Union. Join it. You know, we we can really help you out. And I say we because I'm a member as well. They're, they're absolutely lovely people. Um, they're great to work with oh, too. Oh, in fact, yeah. Yeah. Let's, hear, let's hear from them. And they're coming to evict. When you want renters' rights. Then you got to join the fight. The 28th of March marks the end of the eviction moratorium in Victoria. Thousands of Victorian renters will be at threat of eviction. The housing crisis is a choice made by the government. Andrews will deliberately make thousands of renters homeless. If he could stop evictions before, he can do it again. The Renters and Housing Union, Rahu, are calling on your support. Sunday, March 28th, 12pm, State Parliament. Stand with us for our demands on the Victorian government to cancel debt, end evictions, extend rental protections. Join us in the fight for renters' rights. Rahu.org.au
Join your renters and housing union, Rahu today. Rahu.org.au. A 3CR supporter. And tell us about going to the streets with uh, XR last week. Yeah, well, that was really fascinating because, again, I think they're really stratifying their sort of protest action. Um, yeah, and I, I had an interview with them, um, specifically three uh, protesters who all gave some really fascinating reflections. Um, before we d- dip into that, did you want to also discuss um, what you've got coming up as well? Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. I, it was more I, than just me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, it's just yeah. an easy way to go along here. Well, um, yeah, we've got um, Over the Wall. Uh, this is uh, part three of a, an interview that Duncan's done with... Uh, uh, the um, uh, media person at the Australian Unemployed Workers Union who mm-hmm. g- does this uh, overview of what's, what the policies are because, of course, it's not just the uh, moratorium on evictions that are coming to an end but also the cut to uh, the dole, uh, job seeker, as it's uh, being politely called by the um, publicity uh, expansive a Liberal National Party federal government. Um, the uh, what, what's really going interesting is that we've got this uh, absolute storm going on in relation to gender relationships uh, and the incredible level of uh, um, uh, political incompetence. Yeah, and also just general, you know, the outing of misogyny that yeah. that is uh, endemic in this country in this cultural in this culture yeah, basically absolutely and, and yep. of course it's hand in hand with racism and uh uh anti uh, you know the whole business about uh, uh acting as if people who've got a lot of money are morally more important and uh better than people who are poor and uh, yeah, the whole it's culture a stif- it's a stifling it's a, of the working class yeah, yeah. Um, you the know whole, at a the whole broader thing. sense yeah anyway there's it's a perfect storm going on at the moment at that level but of course real uh, other business is going on at the same time i mean the fact that uh uh, women are being uh, attacked on a, a daily basis through this culture uh, just needs to be resolved. Uh, and the government has decided that we should have some sort of, uh, um, what is it? What do they call it? They don't call it a committee. Oh, it's but, an inquiry. Oh, an inquiry. Another yes. one of these sort of yeah. things that are supposed to make everybody feel okay and, about and it. We'll it's look under at control. The, we'll look at the investigations from the inquiry in about two years' time. That's right. And uh, then we'll think about doing something, some of that, depending on who's in power, what the political ley lines are going yeah, at the yeah, time, that yeah. kind of thing. I mean, we're seeing the same washing down of it with aged care in some respects. Yeah, because, the same with aged care, exactly the same stuff. Yeah, so of course I mean, we have, have full to, right to push against an inquiry because it's not going to help. Yeah, yeah, and and the, the thing about it is you already know what's actually going on. Hmm. There are policies that, uh, that uh, have proper effect. Hmm. Um, it's the same with... Uh, you know, homelessness. There are policies that actually make things better. Mm, precisely. If, if you weren't just pandering to developers and business interests. Yeah. If uh, if we yeah. if we actually wanted to, I mean, I think this is this is something that we may want to park for later in the show and come back to as well. Um, but yeah, we need to start talking about concrete policy that we can advocate for, real, tangible, little bits of stuff that we should be going out there and championing and saying, we should be looking at this, we should be considering this, 
that kind of thing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But well, the thing is mm. that I, I spoke to uh, Alison Pennington from the Australian oh, yes, of uh, course. Yep. Institute Centre for Future Work. She's a senior economist there. And at the end of the program, we've got, I had a chat with Alison and it was what we were beginning to talk about was what actually happened last week with the industrial relations uh, legislation that the LMP federal government wanted to push through. Uh, and... Uh, Although uh, the ACTU and others have said that it was a partial victory because uh, elements were removed, but uh, actually the issue of casualisation and insecurity of work right across our landscape, uh, the continuation of making Australia the suburb of America, uh, is on track. And uh, Mm. she has some really interesting things to say, not just about what happened, but also about how, like the uh, gender Uh, attacks on gender, uh, on the basis of gender, the inequality that's inherent in this society, uh, the notion that it's actually the working class and uh, uh, allied forces that are actually have to be in the forefront of change. Mm, Precisely. I mean, uh, when you've got a a prime minister that uh, talks about how things have to happen from the top or the, you know, people talk about, oh, things have to change from the top, actually... um, it's the underwear of this culture that has to change and mm. we're all part of that. And uh, that's it's industrial relations law and uh, issues of uh, violence against women are hand in hand. It's the same power imbalance yep. that has to be uh, resolved. Here, here. Yeah. Shall we uh, move along to the... Oh, and I also went along to Bridget Chappelle's exhibition entitled No Comment. That was a fascinating exploration, which um, hopefully we'll, we'll get into it a little bit later on. Well, it, it correlates with what happened uh, with your experience with X, uh, X-Rebellion. Yes, absolutely. So this week I went along, as I mentioned earlier, to XR. We had a little tent sort of set up. Uh, in the um, uh, Carlton Gardens, and I spoke with a trio of people who all had some really interesting experiences to share about the Autumn Rebellion. G'day, my name is Mark. I am a musician and a pretty much full-time activist with Extinction Rebellion. Hi, I'm Jane. I'm a clinical psychologist that's gone into semi-retirement to work on the rebellion. My name's Andy. I'm an engineer, and I've had to put my career on hold to focus on... Uh, the climate and ecological emergency and civil disobedience with Extinction Rebellion. So you're all here for the Autumn Rebellion. How is it going so far? The intensity of what we do and the intensity of our message is reaching out through the media, even though what we're aiming for, which is a whole week of action, is fairly ambitious, but I think that the intensity of our message is is, is reaching out mm. through even some quite hostile media. The general principle of Extinction Rebellion, which is the forests are being chopped down all over the country, gas projects are going ahead everywhere, but if you go out and protest on those sites, you don't get any media traction, whereas if you bring those to the city, the camera crews are there and they can capture you, and it's, it's just clearly very effective they're waiting for us the next day and they're, they're getting pressed morning and night which after a year of COVID, 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 COVID climate has to be back in people's heads because it hasn't gone away. Yeah, it's easy to get disheartened when you don't have 50,000 people on the streets but I think given our stated aims on the terms we set for ourselves which is to cause a big fuss kick up a big stink, 
you know, put the issue at the front of people's minds. I'd, I'd say the media have been quite, quite enabling of that. We have made a splash, you know, despite the limitations, despite the rain, despite the virus, despite the difficulties in organising. I would say, on the whole, it's going better than I would have expected. One thing that was pretty notable through the week for XR was that two of the main uh, demonstrations had to be cancelled up in Sydney and Brisbane due to extreme weather. I, I guess it's a, a bit ironic to say, you know, a inherently environmentalist-focused group has to adapt to climate change as part of its environmental demonstrations. Is that restricting what you do, or is it something that's only fueling more momentum? You know, it's a big continent, and it's very easy for people to not pay attention to what's happening in other parts of it. The mayor and the police threatened to turn the sprinklers on us, even though we've had about 15 mil of rain last night, which would actually be devastating for the lawn. But what we need to do is leverage... The, the reality that uh, at least 15,000 people have been evacuated in New South Wales at the moment and there's another 18,000 that are pending evacuation today. So all those people, we need to bring their voices and their situation to the fore here and that's our aim for the next 24 hours. Our theory of change is partly about bringing large numbers of people to the centre of cities and shutting them down for as long as possible. That's basically what they did in London for 11 days and 11 nights. That's how they got the declaration of a climate emergency. But the other part of um, what we do is basically our message. In some ways it's helpful that we can see right here, right now, that it is an emergency. We were talking today about just actually getting some banners for New South Wales, because I can't do much else, just with climate emergency and an arrow pointing down, right? like over some swollen river or something. People are very concrete. Like Sadly, we pay much more attention to a threat that's right here, right now. It shouldn't have to come to that, like the, the warnings of scientists back in 2007. That should have been enough, right? But people respond a lot more to seeing it. And so, although it's really bad for the mass mobilisation aspect and the shutting down cities aspect to have floods in Queensland and New South Wales, it's very good for just climate emergency right here, right now. It's a difficult needle to thread, really. When the bushfires were happening at the end of 2019, beginning in 2020, the logical supposition might be that, you know, we've got this horrible environmental disaster playing out and we've got very clear inaction on the part of the government and that's going to equate to some sort of groundswell of support and action. But what you find is that sometimes people are just a bit more busy having their houses burned down. We've got very clear evidence of the climate emergency that uh, sort of adds to our ammunition, I suppose, to, to make this a very present and immediate issue. But at the same time, you know, we have to face the reality that it would be physically unsafe to go out and disrupt Sydney and Brisbane at the moment. And that doesn't help us at all. I think the fires are interesting. Quite a few years back, I think it was in fact 2016, I know Adam Bant was trying to say this is related to climate, and he got Hillary, like he got attacked like day and night, like through the Murdoch press for weeks and weeks and weeks. I think though this time it's actually been a lot of voices saying this is a climate emergency, including emergency workers speaking out about the fires. And I think it's very interesting. So, if I could briefly ask about what your personal experiences have been so far through the Autumn Rebellion. It's similar to spring, actually. Uh, we did the Spring Rebellion in the same spot in 2019, and I keep getting deja vu whenever I look around the camp. On the whole, I, I, yeah, my personal experience has been one of you know, marvelling at the fighting spirit of the, the people that have made this happen. And then, of course, I was arrested and taken into custody for the first time last night. Well, uh, it wasn't the most enjoyable experience I've ever had. It wasn't uh, horrific. I can happily report that the acoustics in the holding cells are quite something. You don't get 
reverbs like that outside of major studios. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm being facetious. It could be worse. Uh, and I'm certainly glad I did it. It is a proportionate sacrifice. For me, like I came into the rebellion pretty tired because we've just spent months and months, you know, seven days late at night organising this thing. So I came in sort of tired, really, almost a bit dispirited. But there's something incredibly uplifting about taking action. Like it, it just lifts me up, you know. Um, just the conversations I've had with people just from all walks of life, from all different cultures, just saying, yeah, you're the ones we've been waiting for. You know, a part of the point of having it for a week is we really do want people to come and join us. You know, we want people to come and join us as the week goes on. And if we can get the message out about basically, I think, how good it feels. Like someone was coming to look after me after I got arrested going, oh, you all right? I'm going, yeah, like I never felt better because it's this sense of helplessness that you can't do anything, you know? That's what weighs people down. And, you know, what I got was just like a traffic fine, you know? It's not a big deal. But it got on the news. My sister saw it in Tasmania. And it just makes me feel so good. So I really want everyone to come and have this great experience. They don't have to get arrested. But it was, it's really great if they just come on the stand in the street while some others get arrested, you know. It actually feels fantastic. And even just the thing of handing out the flyers, it feels fantastic. Because the vast bulk of the people are actually with us. And you don't realise till you go out and talk to them. But they, they're just going, good on you, good on you. Kicked it off on Friday with a... By driving a tr- truck into a Flinders Street intersection with a big banner that said doing nothing risks everything uh, and getting on the roof which was probably the scariest thing I've done in my whole life however it also felt kind of like the most necessary thing in many ways and that's just a resounding feeling that I have is basically that so much is at stake I have like a res- a responsibility and almost an urge to like give myself to to try and change the situation like so yesterday as well people sat down in the intersection and I just couldn't resist and I had to go sit down there as well because even though like I don't really want to have a criminal record I just recognize that it's a symbol on a piece of paper in a computer and we know what the trajectory is that we are on, you know, for, for rapid warming this century, and that means our world is going to basically die. And I would agree that it was an incredibly euphoric feeling. Other than that, it's great to see, see all the people and the colours and be resilient, even in, in the rain. Was there anything in particular that you personally wanted to raise, some, some personal comments or reflections? And it doesn't have to be related to the XR movement. I think the interesting thing is basically we all know this world is a little bit effed right now and that it could be better and that we all know that if we work together we could be unstoppable and so for me that's kind of the fascinating thing is how how we can unite um, as the people who want a habitable world and justice you know and I think like one thing is the idea of citizens' assemblies, you know, it's sort of like a radical transformation of the current politics, and they could be used for everything, all matters of, of issues, but if we pushed for them collectively, I think we can all agree that the current democracy is really broken, the two-party system, neither of them are doing anything good enough for, for us, most, most people. So if we somehow got behind citizens' assemblies as a solution that we can push in on many fronts. That's one idea I'm curious about and uniting behind. 
Yeah, I guess I'd like to just say to anyone out there that if it seems far-fetched or impossible, the sort of change on the scale and speed that we're advocating for, history has shown us that people's consciousness can shift very, very quickly in response to changes in material conditions. You know, just as there are ecological tipping points, there are social tipping points as well. I think there is good reason to be optimistic that once we reach those tipping points, the change that we're advocating for could begin to happen quite quickly. But what we need is for the people who are listening now who are sympathetic, uh, who know the nature of the problem and who uh, understand that the government will do nothing about it. If you're sitting at home cheering us on, we need you here. Even if it's not here, we need you doing it in your workplace. Or we need you talking to your families. Um, the time to act is now. And look, the time to tell the truth is now. I think sometimes people think that everyone knows we're heading for four degrees by the end of the century. They think everyone knows that even the World Bank says that that's impossible to adapt to. Impossible to adapt to. Not everyone does know. People think, oh, climate is happening. They don't know that we could pass the point of no return at any moment where we won't be able to change this anymore. So I think tell everyone and yeah support us like we've got stacks of stuff you can share on social media now like even if you can't get off work just share our stuff donate is also a really good practical thing that people can do if they're working and can't get time off but if we fry the planet actually nothing else is going to matter and if we pass the point of no return that's what's going to happen right so nothing is more important and I don't think anybody except Extinction Rebellion really has this vision of how we can change this really fast we are, we're at a tipping point, so we need everyone's help. Yeah, fair enough. Hi, this is Katie from Little Birdie, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We need your help to support public radio and your local music scene. Yeah, and you're back with Annie and Geordie on Solidarity Breakfast here on Saturday morning. And uh, that was a very cute sort of interesting insight into what was happening last week with uh, x Rebellion. They had mm. a whole week of um, different actions. And, of course, we know that x Rebellion is a very creative is very creative around its um, demonstrations. It was interesting to me to note that... Uh, uh, the mainstream uh, news uh, outlets uh, used uh, footage of the different uh, uh, events on their lead-ins. So there was mm. visuals. Yep. So it's quite clear that uh, um, the idea that X Rebellion is, uh, is annoying to business is uh, and uh, certain aspects of uh, their um, uh, approach. Mm. Um, yeah, and when, when XR appears on... Um, news feeds as default protester footage or default rioter or default delinquent footage, that's excellent. You know, that's being played every single time that sort of content comes to air. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. great. They're, you try, know? they're trying to make out that it's evil and all the rest of it. But, yeah, um, yeah I'm with you on that. And it was interesting because I was on a tram that was uh, literally re- relocated because of, rerouted because of X Rebellion on, on uh, the street. Mm. And uh, interestingly enough, the people in the tram weren't cross. They just discussed what was actually happening. So, mm. you know, yeah. more power to their arm. Um... Yeah, and as I was... 
I, I went ahead and did that recording on Tuesday of this week, and I crossed over to 3CR studio and then took the 86 back down through, you know, uh, Carlton Gardens area again and back through the CBD. And um, once I had um, uh, gotten off at Swanson Street, I was walking down towards the Nicholas building and... Uh, and the reason for why you were there? Oh, well, that was um, Bridget Chappelle's No Comment exhibition, which uh, I'm going to lead into. But I think it was really fascinating. This exhibition is such a response to the nature of police versus protest. And if you remember where the cop shop used to be on Flinders Lane, it's not there anymore ever since COVID. Um, as I was heading into this exhibition, there was about 20 or 30 police all putting gloves on. And you know they're going to engage with people when they start putting gloves on now and they start putting on their masks as well. You know, it's no longer checking the weapons. It's like, okay, we've got to follow the procedures. It's actually really easy to read. <laughs> um, but, yeah, they're all putting gloves on and all turning around all at the same time, going around the, you know, the Lord of the Fries stand, all down Flinders Lane, just sort of snaking and sticking tightly on the sidewalk. Um, so I guess it was really appropriate then to lead into an exhibition piece about long-range acoustic devices. Walking north from the corner of Flinders Street Station, the Nicholas Building is easy to miss among bigger attractions. It's a floor-to-roof tiled arcade on the corner of Flinders Lane and Swanston Street. Take a creaky, tight elevator up to the seventh floor, and as soon as the doors open, you'll hear an enticing sound, which, as the artist puts it, references the simultaneous amplitude and secrecy of raves. It's the sound of the Function 2, an empowered arch of borrowed speakers humming warmly inside Room 14. The Function 2 is one of five works by Bridget Chappelle for her ongoing exhibition entitled No Comment. Don't get me wrong, it's extremely impressive, but I'm here for another one of her works, called Immortal Combat. It's a homemade long-range acoustic device, or LRAD for short, and an equally homemade portable LRAD defense shield. On one side, a set of circuitry and cables links a first-edition iPhone to a small computer motherboard tacked with an array of ultrasonic speakers, each speaker about the size of my fingernail. These speakers are aimed at the other half of the piece, about a meter away. It's a bright orange bin lid, suspended with tight PVC piping. On the concave side, a shotgun mic, which is a microphone that's shaped kind of like a paper towel roll, is capturing the audio of the miniature LRAD. This mic connects to the small transducer on the back side of the bin lid, which is a piece of equipment that converts audio, then to an amplifier which is then set against the bin lid itself. Against the wall is a few sketches showing the path of the audio from the LRAD to the bin lid, and then back to the LRAD itself. To give you an idea of how the LRAD and its reversal actually works, I'm going to move the mic around now, so I'm going to put it in front of the LRAD. And then I'm going to go behind the bin lid. And now I'll put it just in front of the mic of the bin lid, where it's actually catching the audio. 
Now I'm going to bring it very, very close to the bin lid. So what's actually happening here is that the transducer that is connected to the bin lid is sending an inverse signal back in the position of the LRAD. And that's how, now that I'm standing behind the LRAD, you can actually hear audio from it. This is what Bridget attests is phase cancelling the cops. And with that statement, Immortal Combat gets to the heart of the matter. Has published a new report called Tear Gas an Investigation that exposes how the global trade of tear gas is fueling police human rights violations against peaceful protesters on a global scale. Facing live ammunition fire, rubber bullets, tear gas, and more water cannon, the anti coup protesters defied a van and headed out to the streets in their thousands. A wave of extreme heat that comes from nowhere. It's one of the U.S. military's newest non lethal weapons an electromagnetic beam that emits an odorless, invisible, and silent blast of heat. Whoa! Whoa. That's a... That's a uh, Fireworks. That's a serious flashbang grenade. Ooh. Oh, damn. Un unfortunately, there was a, uh, a guy who was right at the location of the flashbang going off. He, uh, he is kind of doubled over. Boy, that was uh, loud. it would be really kind of a it was a miracle if that young guy didn't get uh, injured by that mm. i mean it went off right at him. full-sized long-range acoustic devices weigh about 80 to 100 kilos easily mounted to most kinds of riot control vehicles unlike megaphones lrads have a much tighter cone of noise this means that they are very quiet outside of these cones of harsh noise as demonstrated by Bridget's piece. They generally have two modes of use. One mode is a line-in microphone to issue a warning or some other sort of custom audio. The second is usually a high-pitched chirp generated by software on the LRAD itself. Both modes are easily able to cause permanent hearing damage due to the indiscretion of spray. We have to treat LRADs as part of the available pieces of equipment for police and military to use in mass crowd dispersal tactics. An LRAD is just as indiscriminate and compassionless as water cannons, rubber bullets, and tear gas. LRADs have been used in the US since 2009, with the first one being spotted back in 2004. Here's a clip from an ABC podcast, The Law Report, exploring Australia's involvement with LRADs. This is the sound of an LRAD being used at a Black Lives Matter protest in New York in 2014. Five of those protesters are now suing the New York Police Department for pain and hearing loss. The LRAD has received a lot of media attention in the US, but here in Australia there's been a loud silence. The Law Report contacted all of Australia's state and territory police forces and found that half of them now have LRADs. Queensland, South Australia, Western Australia and Victoria, as does the Australian Federal Police. New South Wales and the Northern Territory wouldn't say if they have LRADs. Of those that do have them, some said the device is only used for communication in siege situations and none of them would let us see their guidelines. 
that point about guidelines is really important, as the use of LRADs is unregulated in Australia. That being said, only one has been spotted in the wild. It was at a Black Lives Matter protest in Sydney last year. A photo of one appeared on Twitter. As Bridget herself said on an episode of 3CR's Thursday Breakfast, it's like the police are just waiting off to the side to use their shiny new toy. It wasn't used on the day. Immortal Kombat does do two things really well. First, it offers an opportunity to explore, play with, and experience an LRAD in a safe, controlled setting. It's very educating. Second, she shows the solution as simple. The use of the bin lid and the PVC is deliberate in conveying that complex technology can be countered with poverty-grade engineering. But there's actually another bit of tech going on here. I'm a bit of an audio nerd and a maths teacher by trade, so I'll try and keep it simple. In physics, phase cancellation is where two waves that are the exact inverse of each other cancel each other out. The transducer that I mentioned earlier, that is actually inverting the audio received by the shotgun mic. Of course, that's hooked up to the bin lid, and the bin lid has this muting effect because it is producing that inverse wave and thus cancelling the audio. You can observe similar tech in active noise-cancelling headphones or by watching ripples on a lake clash with each other. In this work, it represents the clash of police with protest. Two waves that are the exact inverse of each other. No Comment is a free exhibition found inside room 14 of level 7 in the Nicholson building at the corner of Swanston Street and Flinders Lane in the CBD. You can find the brief at liquidarchitecture.org.au. It's running until the 7th of April. You can go along and experience the works for yourself. Have a play. She's done a great job. I love the whole thing. The ambient music within this piece was Bruno Sanfilippo with The Grey Umbrella. The intro and outro music is DJ Brigida's formerly unreleased track, Ugh. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast. Behind these prison walls There's a man who's won awards For the work that he has done Tune in at 9.30am Thursdays to hear a special series, Home Run for Julian. Join James Brennan as he tracks the campaign to bring Julian Assange back to Australia, starting on the 18th of March. This special four-part series will feature interviews from Julian's dad, John Chipton, and other tour participants. Follow the convoy from Melbourne through regional towns in New South Wales and Victoria and back to Melbourne. Thursdays, 9.30 till 10am. Home run for Julian on 3CR. Is someone who is a hero to whistleblowers everywhere. 
You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Jordan. That mm. was a lovely piece that you just put together. Well, I tried to do the art of the exhibition justice with um, uh, responding with a little bit of my own. <laughs> <laughs> Not to big note myself or anything. <laughs> yeah, well. But it, it, it's such a lovely, fun exhibition. And yeah, it is free. It's really entertaining. And whether you're curious about the nature of protest or maybe you just really like uh, exploring rave culture, um, go along and check it out. It's really comprehensive for what is just a tiny little room with about five or six pieces in it. Yeah, it's really lovely. Um, and I think on on that night, actually, that I first went, um, I went along to the opening night and they had this separate piece off to the side as part of it, which was called the Alley Cat Walk. And it was um, kind of like a treasure hunt route. And it was from the... Golden Gate car park in Chinatown, um, back down through Flinders Lane and then up along the Yarra River towards um, Signal. So it was almost like this, it was exploring this route of like a, a good night out. And they had a few people sort of stationed up at different points. And um, I think the highlight of it was um, squatting with um, uh, two, you know, fairly youthy people. Um, and they, they passed us some vodka and, um, some energy drink, <laughs> which, you know, that was, that was interesting. Um, but yeah, it was a really good night overall. And, um, yeah, the exhibition's still there. It was very lovely. Yeah. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham, and this is Over the Wall. Today, we resume our conversation with Kristen O'Connell from the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union. This week, we cover indexation of benefits and related issues. Some recent reforms to Centrelink benefits have become pretty idiosyncratic, as Kristen O'Connell points out. She also signals the disappointment of the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union at not being permitted to appear at the recent Senate hearings on Centrelink changes. People on JobSeeker payment and people on parenting payment um, partnered are going to have that indexation taken away, whereas people on parenting payment single will keep the indexation, but they haven't changed the income-free area for people on parenting payment single, but they've changed the income-free area for people on JobSeeker use allowance. It's like they hope that we don't look at these things, and I have to say it's really disappointing to see the submissions to the Senate inquiry this week from other organisations and the evidence given at the hearing on Tuesday did not get into any of these implications at all. And that's just one of the many reasons we were very frustrated and disgusted to be denied an opportunity to appear at the hearing because we wanted to highlight these issues and we certainly want to see Treasury answer the question, what is the difference over the forward estimates of making these changes? Because again, they're selling it as a benefit, but we believe it's possible that over the forward estimates this is going to be a budget savings measure for the government and they are constantly seeking to save money off the backs of the poorest and most vulnerable people. For example, that youth allowance difference, that means someone might be $3.50 a fortnight better off come 1 April than they would have been before COVID. So it's not exactly showering us with support and that'll very quickly erode on the basis of losing that CPI, that indexation. 
If you become newly unemployed, on top of waiting periods to punish those who voluntarily leave employment, you are subject to further waiting periods based on your level of savings, which are expected to be drawn down before dole payments are opened up. Kirsten went on to explain that, perhaps surprisingly, the deeming rates for savings are not indexed. She went on to describe a particular case and to support the principle of universality. That rate actually isn't indexed at the moment and it hasn't been. It is $5,000. If you have $5,000 in your bank account, then you will have to serve something called the liquid assets waiting period. There are other things that count for liquid assets and there are also other things that give you exemptions. But that's the straight up, you know, that's the basic level. What that means is they won't give you a payment for 13 weeks. You know, it's really ironic because they basically say, we'll divide what you've got by $500 a week and then that's the amount you have to spend before we will give you a payment, which is, again, another open acknowledgement that, you know, you need much more than the very tiny amount that they're giving people at the moment and that they plan to give people. So that's going to impose a maximum of 13 weeks waiting period if you have more than $5,000. And of course, as I mentioned before, people are trying to desperately protect themselves. I know a person who is an AUW member, has been in contact with us over the last couple of weeks. They are approaching the end of a contract. They spent five years on New Start. They then spent a few years working at a youth refuge on very low wages. And for about six or eight months, they've had a really well-paid job. And they were so afraid of coming back into the welfare system that they have remained very frugal, saved up as much as they can so that they do not have to try and exist so far below the poverty line. And now they're being punished for that and they didn't know that that was going to happen, they would have obviously managed their money differently. So that's the kind of thing people think, oh, you know, wealthy people shouldn't have access to welfare anyway. I disagree. I think that it's really important that we have universal access to welfare. Even wealthy people do find themselves in situations where they need support. For example, a woman who needs to flee family violence. And if she's in a relationship where she's not working and she's dependent on her partner, that's really very hard to do if you're being judged on the basis of these sorts of tests. So we think universal access is important and we know that for most people who are very comfortable, it is absolutely not worth trying to deal with the welfare system just to get a few hundred extra dollars. In past episodes, I've made the point that since the late 90s, the pension class of benefits has been linked to the wage price index, whilst the job seeker or new start class of benefits, which includes ABSTUDY and AUSTUDY, has been linked to the consumer price index. In that period, wages have increased more than prices, so a sizeable gap has opened up between the pension and job seeker streams. Kristen went on to explain that this would not be changing. Indexation will remain the same um, as it has been in the past. So we know that the recommendation from people who want to make sure we can look after ourselves is that it should be tied to wages rather than CPI, and one of the reasons that New Start and JobSeeker, basically it's the same payment, they just rebranded it, I guess, because the Prime Minister likes to do that, that essentially one of the reasons it's so far below the poverty line now is because it was decoupled from wages. And so over time, wages have grown faster than CPI, even though wages growth has been too slow as well. And that's one of the things that has punished people who are living on unemployment payments. Finally, Kristen talked about principles around indexation that the AUW supports and comparisons with the Henderson poverty line that should prevail. 
we would expect that if we're going to be linking to any form of indexation, that it should always be the case that it never goes backwards. And that is what the government did last year when disability support pension and age pension, I think, were due to have their CPI indexation happen in around September. And it would have meant that payments would have gone down by about $8. And so the government just didn't apply it. And I think that is the principle that should always exist. And therefore, you are protecting people from that risk that potentially if there's wage deflation, it could hurt people and welfare. But we think firstly that all payments need to be above the poverty line and even the pension is not above the poverty line right now. So we have people on the disability support pension who by default have a higher poverty line than everyone else sitting on a payment that is $200 below the Henderson poverty line. So everybody really at the moment is struggling regardless of the payment they're on, except there is a cohort of people who are fortunate to have their own home or very low costs for a mortgage and those people tend to be doing a little bit better than everyone else but people without assets just can't live on these payments that's it for this week next week we conclude our chat with Kristen o'connell with discussions of wage subsidies and job network providers we thank Ms. o'connell for her time and expertise G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when I know we're not supposed to be critical of other 3CR presenters, but I must take issue with a comment Annie made on last week's program about no less a great man as Big Supremo Scuttlebem Morlash's son, a.k.o. Scummo himself. One of the most feeble intellects I've ever struck. She shocked us and at least qualified with, and that's just a personal opinion. It certainly is. I'm sure, listener, you were as shocked as I was, and I suspect Geordie was left speechless. How could anyone think Scuttledem is a feeble intellect? Why, let's just take this week when he... When he uh, well, no, no, perhaps this week's not the best example. No, no, it almost lends weight to Annie's calumny. In fact, Scummo and the team seem to be getting around carrying a great big shovel as every time they open their mouths, they dig the hole even deeper, so much so that all we can see now is the slightest detail of a balding pate protruding from. And the way things are going, it will soon disappear altogether. Like his declaration of support for women, his love for his widowed mum, presumably threw in widowed to attract the sympathy vote, but who's going to vote for his mum? And Benny dug furiously by alleging a you too rather than me too at the Lord Rupert Empire. Not that we object to anyone getting stuck into the Lord Rupert Empire, but it just happened to be 100% wrong, 100% incorrect, followed by a late night mayor culpa. This while explaining that when his lot said there would be millions of jabs available, they didn't mean there would be millions of jabs available, and we all have to be patient, presumably so we don't become patients. It's surprising, isn't it, that with all these goings-on in ministerial offices, the number of people who knew absolutely nothing about it didn't take, have the slightest inkling 
and with shovel firmly in tow, well in hand, Scuttle then then set about repairing the damage he had attempted to repair with the previous attempt to repair by deciding a matter solely for the law to take its course was in fact not a matter solely for the law to take its course by banishing former Attorney General the sick, ailing, recuperating, pleading, innocent Christian Portaloo to be flushed down the big loo. And the Minister for Train Killing and Being Offensive, Linda Feminist Support Reynolds, to the depths where at least she's not likely to encounter one of the submarines whose contracts she's handled so efficiently. Dig, dig. There, there does seem to be some memo on the back of the shovel. Not, not sure we can read it from here. Hang on. Uh, uh, yes, I think it says, better you than me. Not sure what that means. Look, I do take Annie to task, but perhaps we'll wait till next week to prove her wrong. Feeble intellect, scummo. At least Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony Albing Uzi has learnt the secret of increasing his popularity from the minus depths to which it had sunk. Do nothing. Just sit back and watch Scuttlebin digging his way into the abyss. And after a caring business class MP emotionally announced she would resign at the next election, she was joined by the usual commentariat, particularly the Lord Rupert of Wapping commentariat, in blaming, hounding by, quote, leftist thugs. Yet the best they could come up with was the Socialist Party and Get Up both of whom deny the accusations, by the way, but the Socialist Party and get up. So, so where are the leftists they're blaming? Sure, the Socialist Party does seem to throw up the odd branch-stacking thug, but leftist? Come on. But to a place where women are respected as women, as wives and as wives and as wives and as mothers, as mothers, as mothers, homemakers, 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 as images of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Apparently that Joseph would believe anything. I know we consider the Lord Rupert a whopping sin can get a few things wrong, but it is extremely rare for it to get a literal misspelling in a headline. Thus it picks up the, maybe it was a Freudian award for Business Page Tuesday story about Austrac making a minor error over Vatican finances, claiming the church transferred $2.3 billion into Trublawazi, implying money laundering, when the real figure was much, much less. Put down to human error by the Austrac Supremo, the headline, Human Error blamed for Vatican mistake, H-U-M-E-N. And I thought, maybe the whopping sin just wanted to sum up the Vatican as a medieval repository of you men. Facing the Senate Estimates Inquiry, the Austrac Supremo Nicole Rose, real name, was also heavily questioned over 500 mil of international drug money that passed through True Blue Aussie banks. The bank, she said, did not do anything wrong because they had no idea they were money laundering as if our oh-so-ethical banks would dream of such a thing. Banks, like many financial institutions, she said, are used by sophisticated criminal elements. Some, dare we say, might say they are sophisticated criminal elements themselves. Not that we'd say that or that it takes one too. Well, no, no, they didn't know. And we can but imagine how the ethical men and few women in the great bank boardrooms must have felt when they discovered they had been deceived, that they had been used to launder millions by international drug cartels. Oh, how we feel for them. 
See one of our proud Troubler Aussies, the worst pack bank, is threatening to get out of New Zealand after the NZ government introduced measures to, quote, cool a runaway housing market. Paul Worstpack claiming the measures would hit it with costly regulations and capital. These totally unjust measures will limit our capacity to rip off the putters, it explained. On great ethical institutions, the East Coast floods initiating a flood of insurance claims. We asked insurance executive Roger Smallprint how the industry would handle the emergency. We're being very honest with people. Roger looked very sincere. Honestly, we tell those who've been forking out their hard-earned to us for years, you are not covered. It's much fairer. It gets their bits of disappointment over quicker. Uh, but, but why aren't they covered? Because they're either not covered for flood damage or not covered for an act of God. It's, it's simple, really. If, if they're insured for flood damage, we declare it an act of God. And if they're insured for an act of God we declare it flood damage, uh, which means either way, they're stuffed. After successfully surviving that challenge from an ex sorry, copper called Batten last week, caring business class party state supremo and would-be big state supremo Michael Nobrain said he was proud to have such talent in his party, showing he's easily satisfied. Anyway, one of them, a bloke called Smith, decided to get stuck into the socialist government over not letting enough spectators into the footy. Read, showing you care for footy fans is a vote winner. And in the same grab, he said the government can't control this virus and then said there was no reason why we couldn't have capacity crowds at the footy. Now, if this is an example of the depth of talent, no brain has a few problems. Can't control the virus. No reason why footy shouldn't be open to all. Someone should tell this bloke called Smith he can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. An even bigger worry is maybe he's one of the more talented of the invisible bunch. Or possibly no brain knows that if there was anyone there with the slightest talent, he'd be out the door immediately. As JobKeeper is about to stop job keeping, Catman Do Give Us Your Hard Earned announced it had decided not to return the 20 mil it happily accepted while announcing record profits. We thought hard about it, it said. Sure, for as much as roughly five seconds. Rag trade retailer, the ever-smiling, ever-happy Solomon Biglu, went one better, announcing along with record record profits, not only would he not hand back the millions he received in corporate welfare, but attacked the Socialist Party for daring suggest he ought to hand a bit back. They didn't take a wage cut, he attacked the Socialists, without quite explaining the relevance of that brilliant repartee. Finally, saving the best news to last, exhilarating excitement for lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions, and also a good news for women's story, proof the government does appreciate really talented women, appointing women on merit and not by some quota system. Our new fair work, True Blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like a commissioner, a 13-year appointment. That champion of the working class, one of our favourite former caring business class MPs, particularly the former bit, yes, none other than Sophie Morabella Cosa herself. Now there's a woman Scuttleben can be proud of, like his widowed mum. 
And the government does believe in quotas when appointing to the Fair Work Troublewazi Commission, balancing the equation by appointing only commissioners from the caring employer's side. Obviously, there's nobody on the worker's side worthy of appointment on merit and hasn't been since former big supremo Tani a bit more for the bosses was elected. That's where quotas work, or, or fair work. Good morning. Yeah, that's just a blow to the the whole idea of corruption takes on a capital C when you think that uh, Mirabella is getting a 13-year, uh, almost $400,000 salary job on the uh, Fair Work Commission. It really puts uh, yeah. the Fair Work Commission into some sort of disrepute if, mm. it, if it didn't need any more disrepute. In many respects, that, that Fair Work Commission was such a, or is such a strong line of defence, and it's just being stripped away. Oh, um, it's really frightening, isn't it? Did you want to offer some some of your reflections on the whole gender equality sort of Well, there's a couple debacle? of things. Uh, no, uh, one thing that I, it's, uh, stood out, it's not from me, because uh, I've been collecting a whole range of stuff about it, as most people probably are. Mm. Uh, just remind you all that you're listening to Annie and Geordie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR um, on this Saturday morning. I picked up a little letter from one of the uh, newspapers. It was The Age, and it was written by Morag Thorne from Mulgrave. I just found it uh, uh, really encapsulated something that I've been thinking about. It's called Male Self-Education. I hope the concept of, in inverted commas, educating our sons about sexual matters goes beyond still leaving it to our daughters to set limits of male behaviour. Boys and men should be educated to recognise their own motivations when they think, talk about or interact with women. Being able to identify whether they are acting out of sexual excitement, anger, insecurity or ego might help them recognise bullying, lust, self-centred persuasion and the desire to assert their own will upon above all else. They must deal with these issues themselves, not displace them onto girls and women. And uh, I think that's yeah, called. Yeah. I think that's called being a grown up. Yep, yep. I can speak as someone who's been through the Australian education system really recently. That I think the whole topic of consent education uh, that that did the rounds a little bit with the revelations regarding Wesley College and a few things after the March for Justice rallies. Um, I'm 24. I've been through the ACT education system, which is pretty liberalistic when it comes to sex education generally um there wasn't necessarily an explicit consent education there was and that was maybe in year nine or so where we first had explicit education around consent but it was framed as an active engagement so if there wasn't a no um, but then it wasn't also fine if the person was drunk and, you know, there was, there's lots of other, you know, exclusions to that. Um, that's not necessarily as pragmatic for a lot of kids. And a lot of kids learn very differently. Um, quality consent education nowadays uses a model of the active yes. So always, always, always having that active yes, first and foremost, and then having the same issues around, you know, drunkenness, power imbalance, that kind of thing. That's what quality consent education looks like. And there's still a lot of room to improve on that. Um, the other thing that I just thought was so horrifying about the political crisis was, I think last night at about 1am, or I should say this morning at about 1am, 
I stumbled across so many people, you know, hoisting their hands into the air for Tracy Grimshaw of a current affair, you know, (laughs) goddess of modern journalism, for actually delivering a really aggressive, confronting interview with Scott Morrison about this exact issue. And if you go watch clips of it, she's done a really good job. But it's it's almost like this really awful dystopia where we've kind of come full circle and suddenly a, a current affairs is actually the standard of journalism. You know? <laughs> that's, that's really horrifying, <laughs> if nothing well, else. Well, obviously, it's uh, laid a glove on m- the smirk machine that is our MP. Um, Absolutely, yeah. PM. All these letters, all these letters, all these letters. Anyway, uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Geordie, and we're moving on to uh, my interview with Alison Pennington. Alison Pennington is the is a senior economist at the Centre for Future Work at the Australia Institute, and I caught up with Alison because I wanted to get some sort of understanding of uh, what happened with the industrial relations uh, legislation that the uh, LNP federal government was trying to get through uh, and uh, what it means for workers. The inception of the bill came far before the pandemic hit, right? So it came from those two federal court cases, the Workpack and Rosado cases, which opened up liabilities to employers who were employing casuals in a permanent capacity that is employing, you know, in this case, like a labour hire worker on a casual contract next to a permanent worker. And the court found that employers couldn't do this. They couldn't treat and, uh, you know, engage a worker on regular stable shifts and not pay them their entitlement. So what this did with these cases opened up this massive liability and the business lobbyists had been pushing very, very hard uh, pre-pandemic for this to be um, this definition issue to be resolved, uh, which they kept saying was a complexity issue. Of course, they use that word all the time. So the absolutely the the cornerstone of the legislation, the omnibus bill, was always going to be the casuals changes. Um, that is a new definition of casual work and weakened conversion rights to permanency. And they got those through. But what we saw, uh, I think, as part of Christian Porter's ambitious, um, you know, moderate, you know, in better commas, moderate liberal perspective of he was very ambitious for leadership and I think he wanted to be seen as the consensus builder and that's where the industrial relations uh, workplace, um, the, uh, the, the round tables came from. And, of course, the you know, ACTU and unions were pulled into those processes and had to, I think, perform that they were you know, playing ball because it was always going to be about a political framing. Were were unions going to be the the people who worked with them or were they, you know, the ones who were blocking reforms? And I think really what those working groups showed was uh, it was basically business wish list building and um, nothing that really came out of that made it to the bill. And what, what really did get into the bill was additional things that, uh, that the business lobbyists had been pushing for in their own little, you know, grab bag of ideas. So they had the enterprise bargaining changes, the eight-year wage locked greenfield agreements, which were really important to mining, uh, big mining capital, um, and casualisation of permanent part-time work. And then the wage theft compliance stuff was just sort of thrown in, I think, by government as a sweetener. Uh, I think that they had, they would have had a few strategies. They would have 
for saying that unions would come out very strong against enterprise bargaining changes because, of course, these are our members and we represent them. Uh, but I, I, I think that they were, they would have been, you know, prepared to, to drop what they had to to get the main guts for them. The guts of the bill was the casual changes, I think. But we have seen um, in Senate estimates uh, yesterday, the Attorney General's Department, the, the bureaucrats in the department have said that there is the intention to keep pushing this legislation and bring back those uh, those parts that did make it through. So, I, I mean, I, I don't put it past the government to try and bully the senators across bench to try and get more of these measures across. But look, looking at a government in total shambles and crisis right now, but, you know, that's also never stopped them doing what they want. So, um, you know, I guess uh, I think it's they, they did they did plan for this. They did plan to lop off most of the bill and put through the casual changes. And we'll see um, whether they want to bring back the rest of the bill because that would require them to fight potentially an election on industrial relations issues, which I don't think that the coalition government want to do. Yeah, okay. The uh, next thing, of course, is that, as you pointed out, we have got a government that's in shambles, but it it appears to be Teflon in lots of ways. Uh, But its key uh, reason for the shambles is this disgraceful uh, uh, outing of their uh, anti-woman zeitgeist, you'd have to say. (laughs) Um, And... um, this really is revealed in its uh, casual uh, casualisation and insecure work aspects of the industrial relations bill, particularly, doesn't it? I mean, it's almost uh, social engineering in relation to women's role within society. Yeah, and this is I've been trying my best to try and push out a broader, uh, you know, deeper explanation of where it is that you know violence against women comes from um, in the the mainstream media because we've just we're going round and round in circles talking about culture it's always about the the culture of parliament house the culture of the the liberal national party i mean the culture comes from political a political platform and we're looking at a a government and you know an organization frankly that is deeply hostile to women so I, I joined a discussion last night on um, on the drum, and they're they're talking about, and the government's talking about introduction of quotas. I mean, the, an organisation like this is going to struggle to attract women in general, which, on the whole, in Australian women are uh, far more progressive on lots of issues uh, compared to their male counterparts. But it's pretty hard to attract women to a yeah an organisation that. Has, is uh, undertaking a sustained you know, economic war against them. Uh, we've not only have we seen these industrial relations changes, um, these, these casual changes that have passed the Senate in the bill will disproportionately impact women because they make up 54% of all casual workers and um, 62% of all of the, the casual, job, casual job growth that's happened in the last six months of the, our so-called, you know, economic recovery has been taken up by women's jobs. So any bill that undermines the capacity of workers to get permanent, better work and increases the power of employers to use casual labour is going to impact women um, more. Um, Not only in the industrial relations space, 
you've got uh, you know wage freezes across the public sector, including of their own employees in the Commonwealth. Uh, over 60% of public sector workers are women. Uh, we've got you know the reintroduction of for-profit childcare, which is pricing women out of the ability to do paid work. Uh, and you've got you know no funding going to domestic violence services to deal with this like deep recession and sustained you know stagnation and like clear problems in uh, across Australia. I, I think you know we could the list could just keep on going. Well, this is uh, a government because it is so anti-worker and it is so hell-bent on cutting public funding, uh, lopping off the ability of the public sector to deliver important services. Women suffer the most from this, you know, deregulation and austerity agenda. So, it, if we can't, if we can't, you know, raise more broadly, what is the environment that creates violence against women? Um, yeah, we're going to keep running down this this rabbit hole of culture and changing culture. Uh, you know, culture comes from somewhere, and yeah, unless we can start talking about the the economic factors that. That yeah, undermine women every day and make them insecure and make them you know if they can't earn enough money in a secure job, then it's pretty bloody hard to get away from um, you know a violent partner who's also whose income you are depending on. It's pretty hard to get away from um, violence when the alternative is a below poverty unemployment benefit of which the government has refused to increase you know the unemployment benefit to a, a rate above the poverty line or you know. And that is the same for single parenting payments, caring payments. You know, it's the the, the scale of this of the the sledgehammer attack I think against women right now by this government is is huge. Like they are bearing the brunt of not just the the recession and the economic fallout of this crisis, but of the of the the the, the right wing agenda of the of the LNP. Yeah, it, it seems interesting to me that uh, I mean it's an, a mantra that I've established in my life, because I always try to be reasonable, use my reasonable voice because of the upbringing I've had. Um, but, you know, if it, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, then it is a duck. And I know that sounds sort of simplistic, but uh, the idea that free market approach and uh, the business-centric uh, um, heart of this LNP federal government, which is probably far more... Uh, right wing than most uh, liberals in this country would actually admit to uh, means that they're actually not fit for purpose. And the IR laws uh, that says things like uh, small business doesn't even have to, uh, and that means uh, businesses that employ 15 employees no, don't, aren't even covered by any mm. of the uh, laws that... Uh, uh, deal with casualisation, etc., which means that there's an open slather across our mm. country for um, creating an insecure work environment without any government. Uh, it makes you wonder about what the purpose of the government is in their own eyes. Yeah, and this is the, the lie that they want everyone to, I don't know, to understand... I think anyone, any union member who's tried to organise in their workplace or a unionist that's had to navigate this, you know, quagmire of highly restrictive, punitive legislation that, you know, holds us back from being able to organise, um, will be able to easily 
pop this bubble of the idea of a free labor market, like this idea that, and this is the underpinnings of uh, this the right wing neoliberal you know, ideology about, um, you know, you go out into the labor market and you, you know, freely sell your labor and uh, you will get, you know, the, the, the price that is uh, proportionate to how much productivity you, you add into that. You know, these are all the ideas that they uh, continue to peddle. And the idea is, as well is that government has no role in intervening into a free labour market. But since day dot, since this colony began, this has been a, a deeply um, punitive and authoritarian role for the government in intervening into setting uh, the rules of how people come together and well, how an employer and an employee come to the, the table. In, they come to the table in deeply asymmetrical uh, ways like one one party has a lot more power than the other and it's it's a it's a lie to say that there's no role for government in setting the rules of a labor market um, at the moment we've had a government that's been intervening to make workers weaker and weaker and weaker and strengthen the upper hand of the employers and you know it's causing all sorts of problems even for business right because you know if people's we've got white uh, widespread wage stagnation and this is partly why the small business association came to an agreement with the actu because small business depend on you know higher uh, disposable incomes of workers more than large businesses which are running uh you know monopoly kind of markets in many ways you know we're talking the duopoly who are the biggest beneficiaries of them of the legislation and you know fast food and so uh there's a reason why small business would come to an agreement that says we need people to, to earn more. Um, but, yeah, it doesn't matter to, to like, this very small section of powerful, uh, you know, power, most powerful businesses who are aligning right now with the political class in government and an increasingly smaller layer of that political class to uh, just keep slashing and burning. And this is... You know, I work in a space where I'm, I, I talk policy and I, you know, I'm put on a blazer and I have to, you know, talk about the roles of things like rebuilding better and fairer legislation and a collective bargaining system where, that allows workers to actually fight back and, you know, what is the role of government and the Fair Work Commission in active wage-boosting policies? Because there is a clear role for government in boosting the wages of workers and we should be straightforward about that. Um, that might be my role, but you know, fundamentally, like what we're dealing with in Australia is a crisis of organisation, and uh, and until until we get um, you know some serious momentum and you know greater levels of organisation from from workers across this country um, from the ground up, it's going to be pretty hard to to bring a halt to this slash and burn and deepening political crisis we face. Yeah, uh, that. Uh segues us beautifully to this latest announcement that Sophie Mirabella has been appointed by this Liberal National Federal Government to the uh, Fair Work Commission, which is becoming more and more called the Unfair uh, Commission, Work Commission, basically. Mm. Yeah, and this raises questions for us. You know, like once upon a time, our consideration arbitration system built by strong organised labour, it, it is a perfect example of the kinds of things that we can create that 
intervene into the employment relationship to, to rule in favour of workers. And it's, you know, it's, the, it's, been, it's been changed and uh, its role's been, like, you know, obviously undermined over time to the point where it's, it's been weaponised. It is a... The Commission is, has been weaponised against workers and, you know, the question is for, for union, you know, unionists is, what do we do about the Commission, you know, because it is, it is being increasingly stacked beyond recognition and Mirabella's, um, you know, recent appointment is just... Uh, I it's mean, gobsmacking. I'm not surprised. I mean, it's, it's gobsmacking because she's got such a terrible... Uh, record of uh, flagrant uh, abuse in her statements. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But she she represents the Howard era of work choices, and I think there would have been a lot of big pushes from business to get her on there because they want to stop. They want to get through these enterprise bargaining changes, and she carries the flag of their you know the employer work dream to bring back. Uh, the work choices legislation, of which they tried to do a little bit of that in the past bill with the enterprise bargaining changes, with the abolishing the boot um, and removing the role of unions to contest non-union agreements. Um, I, I think it it does bear for me, I mean, I've been a bit deflated about the outcome of the bill passing, but I was um, momentarily uplifted by um, seeing that the uh, CSMEU in New South Wales had been contesting a whole range of non-union agreements that employers had been trying to push through that were um, undercutting union agreements by you know up to two percentage points in, in wage increases. And the way that they could contest those non-union agreements is they relied on the protections in the Fair Work Act that said you have to get genuine agreement from your workers. And so the union was able to prove that, that the employer didn't go about you know, forcing or finding genuine agreement with their workers. And so the commission knocked them back. And now 99% of construction workers are covered by union agreements in New South Wales, which is massive. And I think that's, that's something that kind of uplifted me for a moment because that shows you these are exactly the things that Mirabella is going for. That's what these are the protections that she wants to... Uh, they want to put her in there to be able to rule... not make these sorts of rulings, really, in workers' favours work in favour and um, yeah and I guess that's it, it brings us back to what kind of uh, enemy that we're dealing with what, how how um, they they are they are not stopping at they're not they're not polite about their their program right no and so you said before Annie about putting on your reasonable voice um, I'm, I'm I try and I try and keep my, my, my head cool but like there's they are ruthless in pursuing what they want. And I think, like, we should really be as ruthless and more if we're going to be able to, to come up with better ideas about how it is that we can, uh, you know, rebuild our union movement and take on enemies like this. Yeah, it's interesting to me as well that I've had conversations with different people about uh, uh, things like um, uh, Albanese being a weak read in some respects. But I, I wonder for people not... Uh, I wonder if people shouldn't be just clearer about their approach. You're not voting Labor in. You're actually voting these weasels out. Mm. Yeah, well, um, it's it's very... Uh, it's pretty bleak times. And I think 
we, of course, let's, there's no point voting in a Labor government if it's not bringing uh, some serious and sustainable and like policies that are going to actually make a break with the and, and meet the crisis where it's at, you know, because we could just create the basis for a re-election of a coalition government on even more terrifying terms. So I I guess I, it, it gets back to um, what I was saying about this crisis of organisation. I think we should be focused on building our case independently um, of the Labor Party about exactly what needs to be done um, to rebuild power and to rebuild, you know, democratic, economic democracy in the most fundamental way through our unions and workplaces, and uh, put that pressure on on the Labor Party. I think they are saying that they're going to bring a lot of their previous industrial relations platform from the uh, shortened uh, platform through to this um, the next election, and then with um, Albanese's come out with a few uh, announcements around protecting gig workers by giving them an employment relationship and uh, some pay equity measures. And, you know, we we got to keep the pressure on really to and develop our own ideas and understanding about how do we rebuild power through bargaining because enterprise bargaining is uh, defunct. It's not working. And we have to be able to, you know, build power across industries and sectors. And that is what many advanced economies have sectoral bargaining systems uh, and Australia really has to be you know, taking a leaf out of their books um, where they have better wage rates, higher standards of living, you know, more employee voice from the floor and a stronger role for unions in, in developing workplace policies and broader policies, which is uh, you know, so, so desperately needed for Australian workers. Just to finish off, uh, the government's use of legislation to uh, work out industrial relations balances of power has been effectively used to uh, take it away from the shop floor. What you're really saying is that the shop floor needs to actually stand up and take its uh, real power back. I I mean, we need both, you know, because that's sounds like a bit of a cop-out, but I'm not in a position strategically to say these sections of the labour movement can move and these ones like you know who can and can't I think I I my like I said I I do think this is an organizational crisis but I also do think that without serious changes to like these authoritarian very harsh restrictive laws in which unions are forced to operate in right now where one wrong move and you're completely financially gutted and you don't exist. I mean, this is this is an incredibly hostile environment and uh, I am, you know, the more I understand about the, the state of this, of our legislative frameworks, uh, I think it would be, you know, even if you get individual workplaces to the point where they can take industrial action, like the the, the, the power of employers right now across the supply chain to be able to, you know, plug the gaps in supply and never actually uh, be affected even by, you know, industrial action. I mean, like, the risks right now for workers are so high. And so it's on it's on us to think about how do we build a movement through our workplaces, but workplaces and out. And that's why I've, you know, increasingly been thinking that 
rebuilding the labour movement is going to depend on how we can rebuild with civil society and reach out um, and, you know, across our communities and build, you know, like I, there's this concept of bargaining for the common good, you know, like... Um, are, are you saying of, uh, developing a concept of what's actually acceptable and what's not acceptable? Yeah, I mean, a, a good example is uh, look at the strategies in places like the Hunter Valley uh, where there is the relationships between understanding that what's good for a community is good jobs that pay well and in industries that exist in the long term. And the, like the Hunter Jobs Alliance has is you know uniting the community to say what kind of economy is going to help us or work for us. And I think that's, that's mobilising all sections of the community around... What is the, the future of fossil fuel development there? Um, what is the, the future of skills? Uh, then you've got the AMWU that's been doing lots of work uh, trying to raise awareness of or build the case for high-skilled manufacturing to um, build in the region. And you know these, these sorts of cross-community civil society strategies are important. Um, on, in a more tangible bargaining sense, I think... You know, it should be public knowledge when the teachers or the nurses, for instance, are um, having their agreement reviewed. It should be public knowledge because there should be, especially, you know, the pandemic has shone a light on the, the incredible work and important work of our essential services. I think people would get around teachers and nurses if they felt if there were campaigns that said, hey, like, we are... X percentage points behind decent wage increases and we're falling behind and we need people to back us in. And, you know, suddenly you've got not just uh, the prospect of industrial action in our you know, hospitals or our schools, but you've got public campaigns of people backing in those, those sections of the workforce. So I, I think that bargaining for common goods concept, I think, is something we could explore um, in terms of, yeah, building strategies uh, to, to get outcomes. Workers. Yeah, that's a very positive way to end Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, nice little piece there. Yeah, mm. yeah. And I have to say, thank you very much for your look into the uh, uh, No Comment exhibition. I thought that was the uh, jewel in the crown. And, oh, that's... <laughs> and perhaps uh, Kevin's piece on um, his roundup of the week. Mm, absolutely. Also, it's yeah. quite amazing that uh, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, the experts in the uh, field of... Uh, uh, the dole and its payments and all its permutations wasn't allowed to talk at the uh, Senate, give a submission at the... Uh, I mean, they probably put in a submission, but they didn't get to actually converse with the senators. So that was mm. a bit of a fascinating jewel from this morning's piece. Yeah, rather disappointing, but they definitely would have reached out to ACOS instead, that's for sure. They definitely had a seat on the council. Anyway, yeah. that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. Yep. and uh, Much to talk about for next week. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's yeah, pretty much you're it. Going, you're going to look at the uh, new redistribution of the federal... Yes, um... it was just announced this morning that Victoria is getting a new electorate um, entitled Hawk. It is off to the northwest, so it's out sort of... I'm just having a little squeeze at the paper here as quick as I can. Uh, it is... So it's encompassing parts of Melton, Hume and Murrumbul, if I'm pronouncing that right. Murrumbul. Uh, Murrumbul, Murrumbul Council. So I'm going to investigate that a little bit closer this week and, um, yeah, report back on it till then. good Oh, And coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents. We'll talk to you next week. See you then.
been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.